You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome back to Straight White American Jesus. We're here at the Summit for Religious Freedom once again in Washington, D.C. You're going to hear people at the conference milling about, uh, folks are getting dinner and that kind of stuff. But we're lucky to keep this person who's going to, who's with us from dinner just for a few minutes so that we can talk to her about uh, a, a lot of important issues. And that is Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart. So Reverend Naomi, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. I have a very hard hitting question to start. <laughs> I just okay. want to warn you. So you are a child of Detroit. I am. You now live in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So Pistons or Sixers? Ah, uh, man, come on. Well, we're okay. on the record, so we got to get it right. Listen, I'm I'm rooting for the Sixers. They are doing very yeah. well. They won their game today. I'm very proud of them. And I grew up watching the Bad Boys, okay. and there's nothing like it. So the the little Naomi is a Pistons fan through and through, and the adult Naomi is rooting for those Sixers. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> I, I'm a fourth generation Lakers fan, so my household was not a fan mm. of those bad boys Pistons. Mm. My my great grandmother could not speak English, but she could tell you in Japanese why Dennis Rodman was a jerk. So, um, <laughs> all right, folks. Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart is a black queer church girl, preacher, teacher, and activist. Teaches theology and religious studies at Villanova. Is a fellow at Harvard. And in 2019, was appointed director uh, for faith-based and interfaith affairs for the city of Philadelphia, uh, as we just said, from Detroit and currently serves on the board of Sex Ed for Social Change in Philly. Previous director of faith outreach uh, at the National LGBTQ Task, Task Force and just so many other roles and ministries and places you've served. Let's start here. You've done a lot of work creating interfaith dialogue and coalitions. That's really not easy work. Um, as as somebody who is a black queer Christian, how does that that work look from your perspective? Well, I like to think of it as organizing on the margins, organizing people in exile, organizing people in liminal places between perhaps the faith they inherited uh, and the faith they aspire uh, to embody. Um, so. I see it as being one who is crying out in the wilderness, trying to get LGBTQ people to um, refuse to surrender faith, spirituality to the people who would use those things as weapons against us, uh, to talk to denominations, Christian denominations that are teeter-tottering on the edge uh, of inclusion, trying to get them to go ahead and get in. The water is fine. Organizing people who have walked away from organized religion, who are estranged from the divine because they're so traumatized and so hurt, going to get them in the wilderness and saying, we can set up spiritual community right here, right? I'm not asking you to go back to a center that abused you, but we can stay on the margins and still experience the power of God, right? So um, I see this as the work that saves my own life. Um, I would be alone in exile, be alone in the wilderness, if it were not for people who came and got me and organized me and said that there is a church in the wild for us. Uh, and so I want to continue that tradition. 
of making the wilderness, as Toni Morrison would say, a clearing where we can laugh and dance and weep together. And um, the roles are undefined and imprecise. That's really what queer queerness means to me. So I want to be part of a movement that asks indecent questions about faith and about humanity um, that uh, cares not whether we belong to the institution or fit in to the religious structures that came before us, but, um, but still are deeply connected to the divine, to, to the divine, to holy things. It's, it's what I do to, to save my own life. And I hope that it's an invitation to others to be saved as well. It's just wonderfully put. And the way that you frame that is, is really inspiring. In the short time I've known you, I've heard you say both times uh, that I've, uh, we've talked in the last week or so that we live in a moment where it seems as if people who once felt themselves to be perhaps protected who are not under attack, are waking up to an America where they are. And in some sense, that has turned many of them to activism, to organizing. And yet many of those folks uh, are unfortunately ignorant of the the long struggles of marginalized communities, including the Black church, including uh, Black Americans in the country, and other BIPOC folks. So I know this is not your responsibility, and I, I don't want to frame this question as if it is. But if there are people listening who... Um, are waking up to the fact that they are under threat and only now just realizing that they're joining forces with those who've been under threat since day one. Mm. Is there a way that you would say, uh, this is how you enter into the the coalition Mm. Mm. with grace and humility uh, in order to learn from some of those voices? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just like I would say to an undergraduate student of mine who shows up to class late because they overslept and they just woke up, right? You don't come into class late and then jump in without first listening a bit to see what we're talking about. Uh, what are the rules here? What are the terms of engagement here? You're, you're still a little groggy. You still, you know, need to get the sleep out of your eyes. You still need to go brush your teeth uh, because your breath stinks, right? And so in the same way, I think showing up late to the movement, you know, on the one hand, You've shown up, so that should be commended. And I don't care when you get courage as long as you got courage, right? So come on and just sit a while uh, so that you can get your bearings, so that you can wake fully up, so that you can learn from the leadership of those who've been in the struggle. I will say that I've experienced many often uh, cisgender white men come to radical, inclusive spaces ready and hear the take a seat and listen uh, invitation as an invitation to let the Black folk, let the queer folk, let the uh, been marginalized a long time folk do all the work. And so they're waiting to be asked how they can help. Uh, They're waiting to be commended for being in the room when they could be elsewhere. Uh, so I would say that there's also, you know, listening must be active. Uh, listening must be done with a discerning ear to see uh, how best you can actually roll your sleeves up and begin to participate, right? But, but I would say, yes, that the first step is to come in with the spirit of humility that you've overslept 
and that there might be you, you got to do some catch up because you didn't you weren't here when the class began. It, you know, you would never walk into that class and not just start asking questions, but you would never ask the, the teacher to just start the lesson over. You know what I mean? And uh, that's part of what I hear you saying. Hmm. I also hear you saying there's a balance between decentering oneself and not doing any work, mm. right? You cannot be centered. You cannot be on stage. You cannot be the loudest voice, but you can also still work and, sure. and participate and contribute. And yeah. that's just such a great, great balance to draw in, in the way you frame that. Now, if we turn to something you've been a part of in the past and and I think continue to, to still uh, organize around uh, sex edge for, for social change. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I don't think most Americans think of a minister, uh, as the one who's going to advocate for sex ed for social change. I, I want to ask two parts of that. How is that part of your ministry? Mm -hmm. How is that part of your politics? Mm. And they're probably not separate, but, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I was in Washington, D.C., where we are now. I was working for the task force and I came, I, I had to testify, not really testify, but give remarks at a congressional hearing. So it wasn't kind of what you see on C-SPAN. It was like the thing underneath that. Um, we were talking about um, the same old thing, protection, protection for people's ability to have autonomy over their own bodies, et cetera. And somebody was in the room who I, I went to college with, a colleague of mine who is a lawyer and works in kind of constitutional law and stuff. And she came up to me afterward. She said, we got to have lunch. We got to have lunch. And so we arranged to do it like the next day. And we had lunch. And she said, I'm on the board of this organization called SECUS, and we just changed our tagline to Sex Ed for so Social Change. We are the organization continuously trying to push both the federal government and state governments uh, to institute comprehensive sex ed. And we understand that our opposition is often making the case that this is inappropriate, this is wrong, on the basis of faith. And we have not had anybody who can help us interpret those religious arguments or confront them, uh, argue with them. We are policy people. We are public health people. We are sex people. But we are not people of faith. And I was like, well, I'm a sex person and I'm a person of faith. So, But, but it began my relationship with Sikis, uh to be the kind of resident religious person around the table to help us understand these religious attacks on sex ed. I think that, that there's a place for me at this table for a couple of reasons. One, I was taught to believe that my body was a problem yeah. for my faith. So before I came out, before I started saying, I am woman, hear me roar, before I knew myself to be a free black woman, I had a body. But that body was in the way of my being faithful, according to the elders and the, you know, church mothers mm -hmm. that raised me. Mm -hmm. uh, the body wants things that are unholy. The body does natural things that are a violation, right? The body was a problem. And so um, that was one message that was limiting, of course. But then simultaneously, we got the message that um, there are certain bodies and certain things you do with your body that uh, are prescribed by God. So on the one hand, the body is a problem. 
And on the other hand, sex is sex is blessed by God when in the container of cisgender heterosexual marriage, right? And so I was like, how can this be? How can God give the gift of sex to heterosexual married couples, cisgender couples, uh, while also condemning the body? Because without, y- there's no way to be close, intimate, go to heaven with God uh, if you've got a body, right? Uh, so. I just inherited a theology of the body that eventually would become a problem for me once I, as I said, came to know myself as a free queer black woman. So I'm interested in the work of redeeming the body, mm-hmm. the body as central, uh, certainly to Christian faith. We, this is an incarnational faith. It requires a body. Mm-hmm. It needs a body. God said, I want to interrupt human history. How can I do it? Hmm. There are all of these ways, you know, presumably. Uh, but God imagined that a body would be just fine, right? And so, you know, I think embodiment is actually central to our faith, but we've lost that. And then, you know, the attacks, this is what we've been talking about this whole summit, all of these attacks are coordinated. Mm-hmm. So the same folk who are trying to attack uh, LGBTQ rights uh, and equality are the same folk who are arguing against bodily autonomy and against uh, abortion. And these are the same folks who are seeking to regulate sex eds so that it either doesn't exist, we just think that people are going to learn through osmosis what their bodies are doing, or it's so repressive and so um, connected to harmful, uh, and I think misguided understandings of God and understandings of Christianity that people are scarred forever. Um, So I'm around the table to help the policy folk understand what the religious folk are saying and doing and help us craft messages that resonate with religious folk. Mm -hmm. And I'm at the table because, again, I think that um, it's important for bodies to be redeemed and kind of restored as holy. I think they were holy in the first place. Yeah. One of the first things that happens in that scene in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, in the biblical text, is um, the the imposition of shame, I think, yeah. on the body. Those first human beings cover up. Their nakedness is now a problem. Mm-hmm. Their bodies are, their vulnerable bodies are now a problem and they hide. But God says back, well, who told you that you were naked? And so that scene lets me know that God always intended for the body to be a a kind of a a conduit uh, for God's holy touch. And so that's why I'm around the table. I want to be talking about sex with a bunch of people who are also talking about sex uh, and talk about faith at the same time. Well, when I think about, you know, it's interesting to think about the history there of Sikas, because Sikas, I think, and its advancement into school curriculum in the 60s and, and 70s was one of the catalysts for the religious right to start saying that we have groomers and we have pedophiles all over school and the fourth grade teachers are taking their clothes off to teach anatomy. And, you know, we see, and that happened. And then yet 50, 60 years later, it repeats itself. Here we are. And and we're back at, yeah. we're back at the same conversation. I want to ask you one last question before we go, and that is about the theology of the body you just outlined. Mm. Uh, I was talking recently with someone who came out of uh, an evangelical context, and what they said was, my religious upbringing taught me not only that my body was bad, 
but not to feel the pain of my own body. Mm. And because of that, there was no way I would ever feel the pain of anyone else's body. Uh. And so I'm wondering for you, when you discovered the theology of the body you just talked about, mm. was that a, a, a lighthouse for understanding the pain of other bodies? And could that be for perhaps some of the people listening? Oh, my goodness. You on my street, on my porch <laughs> with this question. It's something that I'm still working through, honestly. I mean, my therapist and I have been going at it around my attempt to get back in my body, which means feel something other than anger yeah. or other than nothing, right? That what cutting off the body does is cuts off everything. <laughs> so you don't want to feel, say, for example, the lust yep. of the flesh. But you also don't feel the grief of yes. the loss yeah. or the the joy of the, you know, the connection with other people. Right. And so I'm trying to um, restore feeling to my own body in this way. So I think you're absolutely right that that what white Christian nationalism has done, what bodiless. Yeah. Christianity has done is anesthetize us in yeah, a way yeah. uh, so that, no, we can't. I mean, I just read a tweet. Somebody was saying that the Twitter account is like bad medical takes. I think it's at bad medical takes. <laughs> and so I started following it just to just chuckle a bit at the inanity of what people think in terms of the human body. You just we have no understanding as a as a as a society. Right. Um, somebody said that because women's bodies were made to be pregnant and give birth, it, it just can't be that bad in terms of the pain. And I was like, I, so that, that's, that's, that's about not understanding bodies, not understanding bi biology, but also it really, yeah. so you, you can't feel yeah. then if you don't think, like, you could just look at pictures and be like, wow, that had to hurt, right? Yep. And so I think you're absolutely right that we're not in our bodies. We are constantly encouraged to leave our bodies. We are given substances that help us leave our bodies. We work and work and work, and so we don't have to, you know. And so uh, part of my ministry work, I think, is feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I must be, Toni Morrison must be, in my Shondo today, because I'm thinking of, she said, I want to feel what I feel, even if it's not happiness. Yeah. It's just so apt because I, as you were talking about a white Christian nationalism or a purity culture that teaches one not to even feel their own pain, uh, their own grief, I was thinking, this is a zombie theology mm. or this is a ghost theology. Mm. Empathy is is the exercise of trying to put oneself in another's shoes and feel what they might be going through, it's really hard to ask somebody who's been disciplined to not even feel their own feelings to feel those of others. Yeah. And and that's a strategy. That's a strategy mm. of the white Christian mm. nationalists. That's a strategy of the uh, of the the folks we're talking about who uh, are coordinating these attacks on LGBTQ rights, on reproductive rights, uh, and so on and so forth. So we are just about out of time. You need to probably go eat dinner uh, <laughs> and not be in here talking to us. So last question is just, are there ways people can link up with you and your work if they would like to? Sure. So um, I'm on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram 
at oh holy shift. Don't forget the F. Yes. Oh holy shift uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can search me by name on Facebook, and I also have a YouTube channel. So if you if you go to bitly bit dot ly slash watch nwl. That's the YouTube channel that has a collection of sermons and other public speaking okay. engagements Watch that I've done. NWL. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to just sit with us, share your wisdom, your insight, and we hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.